left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Diversify. And when I say diversify, I mean diversify across investors. If I have somebody that comes to me now and says, I've got $500,000, do you have a deal I can put it in? First thing I would tell them is you shouldn't be putting $500,000 with us. Not because I don't trust us. I think we do a great job. But what types of deals are we going to do? We're going to do deals that are highly correlated to each other. We're going to do deals in the same locations, same types of properties, same asset class. If multifamily in Houston goes down the tubes, good as an operator as I might be, I'm not highly diversified in my portfolio. That means investors who only invest with me aren't going to be highly diversified. Hey, Leftfielders. This is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, this is Ryan Steig, one of the co-founders of Left Field Investors, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm thrilled today to have Jay Scott with us. He is an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, author, and partner at Bar Down Investments. He's focused on buying and repositioning large multifamily properties. In the past four years, Jay has bought, built, rehabbed, sold, lent, and held over $150 million in property around the country. He holds strategic advisor roles in several companies and is the author of five bigger pocketbooks, that's amazing, on real estate investing, including the best-selling The Book on Flipping Houses and the recently released, excuse me, Real Estate by the Numbers, the complete reference guide to deal analysis. And we are just so pleased to have Jay not only on the podcast, but as a member of the LFI community. He is an infielder. And if you jump on the forums, you will find him there. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim, thanks so much. This is, I'm really excited to do this. So I joined your community probably four or six weeks ago. And I just love the conversations. I've been looking forward to this. So thanks for having me. Awesome. I've been looking forward to it as well. The first question I always ask is we just want to hear your journey. We know that you're an author. You've had a, bought a bunch of real estate. How did you get into real estate? How did you find bigger pockets? How did you decide, hey, I'm going to write five books? If you can give us the full story of how you got to where you are. Yeah. The common theme in all of those, it was an accident. That's the crazy thing. I guess starting at the beginning, I'm an engineer by education. I worked in the tech world for a long time. I was in Silicon Valley back in leading up to 2008. Met my wife and or my soon-to-be wife in 2006. We decided to get married 
And when we decided to get married, we knew that working 80 hours a week in our tech jobs, she was traveling several weeks a month. It just wasn't conducive to starting a family. We knew we had to figure out the whole work-life balance thing and just do something different. When we decided to get married, we also decided to quit our jobs. We moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, and we decided to figure out something else allow us to have the work-life balance that we wanted. We fell into real estate. It was completely accidental. We were watching a flip show on TV and my wife was like, hey, let's flip a house because we hadn't yet quite figured out what we were going to do next in our careers. And we ended up flipping a house and a second house and a third house and a 10th and a 50th and a 100th. And before we knew it, we were real estate people flipping houses. And from 2008 until about 2016, we flipped about 450 houses and it was great. It was fun. And I'm always a fan of scaling businesses. For me, it was like it was a great challenge to be able to figure out how to go from flipping our first house to building a business around it. I'm an introvert, and it's really hard, especially a little bit better at it. But back then, it was really hard. People started to hear that I was flipping houses, and everybody was starting to get back into real estate. And I started getting a lot of requests from people. Hey, can I pick your brain? Can I take you to lunch? Can we have coffee and talk about flipping? Can you do a phone call with me? And meeting all of these people and doing all of these lunches it wasn't fun for me. It was really stressful. And my wife suggested was, well, all of them just want to learn from you. They just want to learn how to flip houses. I was writing a a blog at the time. And she's like, you've got all this material in your blog. Why don't you turn it into a book about flipping houses? And that way, when people ask you to go to lunch or have coffee or do a phone call, you just say, nope, I don't have time to do that. But here's a book. Go read the book. (laughs) That's great. I love it. And I thought that is brilliant. I love writing. I love teaching. I just don't like talking to people. 2012, I sat down and I wrote the book on flipping houses. And one of the chapters on estimating rehab costs ended up being 300 pages itself. So I said, okay, I'm going to turn that into a separate book. And I had these two books back in 2012. And that's how I became an author. With flipping, it had happened accidentally. With writing, it just happened accidentally. I did it to avoid having to have lunch with people. And at the time, I, was, I had become friends with Josh Dorkin, who was the founder of Bigger Pockets, which is now the largest real estate investing platform on the planet. And Josh and I were friends, and I said, Hey, I wrote these two books. How about if I just release them on Bigger Pockets? Because I'm not a marketing guy, I'm not a sales guy, I don't want to sell them. I just want people to be able to get them if they want them. And he said, Okay, let's release them on Bigger Pockets. And he and I partnered up and we released the two books. And that led to Bigger Pockets Publishing, which is now the largest real estate investing book publisher on the planet. Again, that just kind of happened accidentally as well. And that kind of cemented my relationship with Bigger Pockets and worked with them as an advisor. I had hosted one of their podcasts and just had a great synergistic relationship with them over the past decade as well. That's amazing. And you had your accidents were bigger than my accidents, but it is interesting that the only reason I'm in real estate was an accidental landlord. The only reason Left Field Investor exists because I wanted to start a little dinner club, but pandemic stopped that. So we went online. Next thing you know, we got 1,300 members. The interesting thing to me is a lot of this, you just people just kind of stumble into, but you have to actually then do something with it. And, and that's what you've done and started this amazing career that led to now you're doing syndications at Bar Down Investments. Can you tell us a little bit, how did you get from flipping houses to syndications? Because I flipped one house. I read your book. I didn't read it well enough, obviously, because we made, we joke, we made hundreds of dollars on our first flip and you're supposed to make tens of thousands. The thing I learned is 
flipping is not for me. I'm a passive guy and I've learned that. But how did you go from 450 or whatever the number was of flips to, well, now I'm going to do something different because flips are very transactional. It's different where now you're into cash flowing assets where before it was your cash flow is, hey, I flipped this house. Now I got a bunch of cash. I got to go do it again to sustain it. So what was, talk about that transition. Absolutely. 2016-ish rolls around, 2017 rolls around, and I am completely burned out from flipping houses. I like to think that I was a pretty good business owner, pretty good at scaling the business, but there's a lot of headaches that come along with flipping houses. And no matter how well you might systematize or create processes around the business, it's a very high-touch business. It's a relatively low-margin business, and it can get very frustrating and stressful. Around 2016, 2017, I decided I was done with flipping houses. I actually thought about leaving the real estate industry for a while. I took some time off and said, okay, I'm going to reevaluate what I want to do next. Do I want to go back to tech? I was doing some advisory work for some tech businesses. Did I want to just become a full-time advisor? Didn't know. but So I took some time off and a weird thing happened when I stopped flipping houses. All of this cash that I had in all of these deals came and ended up in my bank account. And suddenly I had all of this cash. I guess I knew I had, it was on my balance sheet, but I'd never seen it all in one place in the last 10 years. Because when you're flipping five or 10 or 15 houses at a time, all your cash is out there. I saw all this cash come back to me. And while I'm trying to figure out what I want to be doing for my active efforts moving forward, I had this challenge of figuring out what I wanted to do with all this cash. I decided, well, I know real estate really well. I like real estate really well. I was a big fan of multifamily as an asset class come 2016, 2017. I said, why not invest it passively? Why not start investing in syndications? 2016, 2017, I started investing some of that money in multifamily syndications. I started investing in some other syndications. I quickly realized, and you're not going to like the answer here for anybody out there that's a passive investor, don't listen, but I don't trust other people with my money. I'm a control freak. I probably overestimate my skill at, at investing in real estate. And I always, I'm going to be a better custodian or a better fiduciary of my money than somebody else will. Well, I found some really good syndicators to invest money with. I was never really comfortable doing big investments or a lot of investments just because, again, I'm a control freak. So 2017, I'm, what am I going to do with my money if I don't trust other people to be investing it for me. And that's when I decided, well, there's no reason why I can't stay in real estate. I can't move to the multifamily or to the commercial side and use syndication as a vehicle to invest my own cash, but in deals where I'm the custodian, I'm the fiduciary, I'm the guy in charge. 2017, I decided I wanted to move into multifamily, use that as a vehicle to, again, stay in in real estate, but also as a vehicle to invest my own funds passively. So I started thinking about how do I learn this business because single family wasn't that tough and there wasn't a lot of risk because I was using my own capital. I wasn't really partnering with other people. I didn't have equity investors. So I didn't have to worry about losing anybody else's money. If things went south, it was my own money. With syndication, that all changed. Suddenly, I'm now a fiduciary for other people and I need to understand this business better than as as far as I'm concerned, anybody else, if I'm going to trust myself investing other people's money. And I reached out to a friend of mine. Her name was Ashley Wilson. And at the time, she was doing multifamily as well. And I reached out to her and I said, I'll make you a deal. I have a proposal for you. I will come work for you for a year. I'll I'll be your coffee boy. I will dedicate my time. I will dedicate my knowledge. You'll have access to my network. I'll put money in. I'll put whatever you want for one year. You've got me. 
I'm not going to do anything else. All I ask in return is let me shadow you and your business for that year. Teach me multifamily. She thought that was a great opportunity for her. I obviously, because I proposed it, thought it was a great opportunity for me. And for the next year, we worked together. And I got to see every facet of the business. She's the best asset manager I've ever met. She got to really see the operation side of the business, that part of the business that a lot of people don't even think about. I got to be exposed to. I helped her because I had the ability to raise capital for her deals and help her there. I'm the numbers guy. I helped them with their underwriting models and helped put together some analysis models for locations and help with due diligence. It was a great partnership. And after about a year, what we realized was we had a tremendously complementary set of skills. There were things that I was really good at that she hated doing. There was things that she was really good at that I just wasn't good at. But between us, we were like the superhuman real estate investor if you put our skills together. And at the time, she said, hey, let's work together. She had a company called Bar Down Investments. She said, I'd love for you to come and be 50-50 partners with me at Bar Down. And I jumped at that opportunity, and we've been working together for four or five years now. That's amazing. A little bit of an accident. Intentionally said, hey, let's trade your knowledge for my network and all the things you brought, and you partnered up. And then all of a sudden, accidentally, you found a new way to, to go forward. So I think that's awesome. It's those intentional accidents. You did something with intention, and it resulted in something good for you. And that seems to be how things are progressing. Yeah, I like to say that I go out of my way to put myself in situations that could turn out well. If you're constantly putting yourself in situations where opportunities could arise, eventually they will. I Trust me, I put myself in plenty of situations that no opportunities come of those and I move on. But eventually the good opportunities will arise and I haven't been scared to jump at them. Yeah, that's amazing. We're going to get back to the multifamily stuff, but I'd like to start with the economy. And everything is uncertain now. There's just a lot going on. There's supply chain issues, inflation, interest rates. There's a war in Europe. There was a pandemic a couple of years ago that threw everything. A lot has happened over the last few years. What does all that mean for investors? Is the uncertainty more of a problem than the high interest rates? And, and how does all that work together in your opinion? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good word, uncertainty. There's a lot of it. And the nice thing as investors is, especially if we're not flipping houses, if we're focused on buy and hold, if we're focused on the right type of investing, the nice thing is that investing has a relatively long time horizon. Our time horizon is going to be three years or five years or 10 years or even 20 years or more. And yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty today. And that's actually the interesting thing when it comes to real estate. A lot of times in a lot of investments we make, we can forecast how well those investments are likely to do short term because we typically have a lot more certainty short term than we have long term. But the nice thing is in, in real estate is we actually have more certainty the longer we go out. If you look at real estate in historical terms, we tend to see trends over 10 or 15 or 20 years. Real estate only goes up over 10 or 15 or 20 years. It might go down over the next month or the next year or the next five years, but given a long enough time horizon, we tend to see real estate appreciate, and typically we see it appreciate right about the rate of inflation over time. The other nice thing about real estate is we get to use leverage. We get to use loans. And so another thing that happens over time is we pay down our loans and our LTVs, our leverage decreases over time. The deals actually get safer. Additionally, we get to essentially dollar cost average into our loans. Yeah, I might take a high interest loan today to get into a deal, but at some point over the next two or five or 15 years, interest rates are likely to be lower. I can get into a lower loan. So whatever cash flow I'm making today, I'm probably making even more cash flow tomorrow. 
And then the one commonality amongst all real estate deals, whether it's today, tomorrow, or 10 years from now, is we're going to get tax benefits. And I know people think tax benefits can change, they can go away. But the nice thing is one of the most popular vehicles for our Congress people for their retirement and for their investments is real estate. And they make the tax laws. And what we've noticed over the last 10 or 20 or 50 years is that some of the best tax advantages come to real estate investors. And that's because that's a vehicle of choice for the people that make the law. So we're going to get the tax benefits. The nice thing about real estate is, yeah, there could be a lot of uncertainty today. But if you set your time horizon many years out into the future, three, five, 10, 15 years out into the future, what we have is more certainty and a high, a much higher likelihood that any deals we do today, assuming we don't make bad decisions, decisions that crush us in the next, again, two, three, four, five years, assuming we don't make really bad decisions in the short term, are likely going to benefit us down the road. Yeah. And with that, how should passive investors be thinking right now? Because if they continue to deploy capital, as you said, as long as they're making good decisions now, it will probably pay off. But you hear a lot of people talking about, I'm just going to wait it out. And for me, it sounds like that's the one thing I pulled over from my stock market days is I don't want to time the market. So I'm going to dollar cost average into deals. I'm going to continue deploying capital. But how should investors determine if they should continue doing that to deploy capital? How do they decide what operators and asset classes to focus on now? Because most people are new to passive investing in the last, what, five years. And over the last five years, it was really hard to make a bad decision because everything went up. We're not there now. So how do passives make those decisions? How do they analyze that? Yeah, a couple things. Number one, historically, when we've looked at investment opportunities, we tend to look longer term. When I look at an area, for example, when my team says, let's analyze a location for investment, we're going to look at typically longer term trends. The big three things we look for are population growth, employment growth, and wage growth. We want to know that over the next five or 10 years, we're going to have more customers who are making more money because they have good job opportunity. We look at these long-term things. If I see that an area has long-term growth potential, again, population, wage, and employment, I'm probably going to say that's a place I want to invest in. To some degree, that's 60, 70% of the analysis I'm going to do before I go into an area. Because if you have those three things, you're probably going to have an area that's ripe for opportunity. But these days, not only should we be looking at the long-term trends for these deals that we're doing, but we need to look at the really short-term. I mentioned earlier that if you can get to the five or seven or 10 years, your deal is going to do well. The key is making sure that the deal doesn't implode in year two or three or four. What I would suggest to anybody looking to do deals right now is focus your risk mitigation. Still focus on, obviously, population growth and the long-term trends, but also spend a lot of time and effort focusing your due diligence on short-term risks and making sure that operators are thinking about those risks and have plans to mitigate those risks. Again, I'm less concerned about if I go into a deal, I'm going to ask fewer questions about, hey, You've modeled cap rate expansion of 0.1% per year instead of 0.15% per year. Why? Obviously, I care about that. I want to see bigger numbers. But that's going to concern me less than the catastrophic risk. You're taking out a floating rate loan. You've got a one-year rate cap, which means that you have this insurance policy that's going to expire in a year. What is your plan if interest rates go up in the next year? That's going to be something I care much more about than how you modeled your rate cap expansion or population growth, because that's the risk that's potentially going to sink the entire deal. 
that's not going to cause the deal to lose 5% or 10% or not do as well by 5 or 10%. That's the thing that's going to cause the deal to, I'm going to get a capital call. Potentially, the deal is going to get lockboxed by the lender, which means the lender is going to go in and control every dollar that's coming in and going out. And worst case, the deal gets taken back by the bank. Those are the big catastrophic risks. But those are the ones that you want to make sure that the operator is thinking about and has plans to mitigate. So I'm always going to ask questions about what are those short-term risks? Are the short-term risks in weather? investing in an area that has hurricanes or tornadoes? And how do you mitigate that? Do you have the right insurance in place? What types of loans are you taking? What types of debt are you putting on deals? What are you promising to investors in terms of returns? And what's your mitigation if you can't deliver that? What's your DSCR look like? How much room do you have for vacancies to go up? If vacancies go up 5%, what's your break-even occupancy number? So if I see an 80% breaking even occupancy, that's going to scare me. If I see a 50% break even occupancy, I know that in a worst case, if we have a really bad 2023 and 2024, the property is going to survive long enough to get into the next phase of the cycle. That's a really long way of saying that as an LP right now, be focusing on the short-term risks and make sure your operators are focused and have mitigation plans for those short-term risks. The next thing I would tell LPs right now, especially new LPs, is diversification diversify. And when I say diversify, I mean diversify across investors. If I have somebody that comes to me now and says, I've got $500,000, do you have a deal I can put it in? First thing I would tell them is you shouldn't be putting $500,000 with us. Not because I don't trust us. I think we do a great job. But what types of deals are we going to do? We're going to do deals that are highly correlated to each other. We're going to do deals in the same locations, same types of properties, same asset class. If multifamily in Houston goes down the tubes, good as an operator as I might be, I'm not highly diversified in my portfolio. That means investors who only invest with me aren't going to be highly diversified. So diversify across operators, diversify across asset classes, because a lot of asset classes are not necessarily negatively correlated, but less correlated. There are times when multifamily is going to do poorly, but self-storage might do well. There's times when retail might do well, but self-storage might do poorly. Diversify so that you have some negative or some less correlations across asset classes. Diversify across locations. One of the big things that we see during downturns, during recessions, during economic booms, typically most areas, rising tide lifts all boats. But during recessions, we don't see that. We see certain areas get hit harder a lot more so than other areas. And that's because recessions play out differently and certain industries tend to get hit harder. And if one industry gets hit hard, let's say hospitality gets hit hard, it's going to hit certain cities a lot worse than it's going to hit other cities. Make sure you're diversifying across areas. Diversify across exit strategies. Have some deals with new construction, maybe. Have some deals with value-add multifamily. Have some deals that are really long-term stabilized plays. Have some deals that are, we cash you out early and then you get what's quote-unquote infinite returns after your money's been returned to you. Have that different exit strategies that you diversified across. Diversify across return structures. Maybe invest in deals that generate a lot of cash flow. Invest in other deals that generate a lot of tax benefits. Invest in other deals that are going to generate large total returns on the back end. Diversify across the types of returns and when you're going to be getting those returns. Lots of ways to diversify. And so don't just think about, I'm investing in a multifamily and a self-storage. I'm now diversified. It's a lot more complex than that. That's phenomenal stuff. And whoever's listening to this, just hit the back button a couple of times and listen to that again. You know, we talk a lot at Left Field Investors about diversification and generally operator asset class market. 
but you added exit structures and return structures and other ways to diversify. That's brilliant because that just means you're covered no matter what happens, right? And that's the point of diversification is to make sure that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. So that's phenomenal stuff right there. I do want to back up real quick. You mentioned DSCR and break-even occupancy. And just to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page, can you explain what those are and why they matter? Yeah, DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. It's probably one of the most important metrics that a bank is going to use. And it's basically a ratio of how much money your property is generating to what your mortgage is every month. Basically, let's say your property is generating $100,000 a month and your mortgage is $100,000 a month. Your ratio is now one. It's not a very good ratio because if your income drops by even a dollar, you can't pay your mortgage. Typically, you want to make some multiple, whatever your mortgage is, in net operating income every month that the bank is comfortable that you can pay the mortgage and you have money left over as your risk mitigation should your income drop. Typically, what the banks want to see is somewhere between 1.15 and 1.25. As an investor these days, I want to see a minimum of 1.25. I want to know that income can drop by about 20% and the deal is still going to be able to pay the mortgage. That's DSCR. Break-even occupancy is kind of the same thing, but looking at it from another aspect, how much vacancy can I have in a deal where I can still pay the mortgage? So if there's 8% vacancy in the property, if I have 8% of the units that aren't paying either because there's physical vacancy, people aren't living there, or economic vacancy, which means people live there but aren't paying their rent, if we lose 8%, does the property just barely pay the mortgage? Or can we lose 30% of the tenants and we can still pay the mortgage? For break-even occupancy, we want a lower number. We want to know that as few units can be occupied as possible and we're not going to lose this deal to the bank. So I typically like to see somewhere in the, I mean, it depends on the deal these days. It depends on where, how much renovation is required, but generally somewhere in the 65 to 75% for a break-even occupancy for a lot of these multifamily deals. If you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably already thinking about ways to generate income passively and to reduce your tax burden. But did you know that you can retain more of your W-2 income by investing in oil and gas? As you might know, my income is generally passive. But if you're a high-wage earner who still gets a large portion of your income from a W-2 job, this investment opportunity could help you hold on to more of your hard-earned money, which means you have the chance to make more passive investments. Billy Keels and the team at First Generation Capital Partners are experienced with investing in this sector, and they have a free download available for our listeners who want to learn more. To find out just how much you can save by investing in oil and gas, head to firstgencp.com slash LFI pay less tax and download your free guide. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. I want to change the topic a little bit. I think it's still related to interest rates. Investing passively in debt, 
is becoming more popular. More people are talking about it. Hey, there's a debt fund. Let's get into that. Here's some preferred equity. Maybe we should invest in that. Some operators offer a different share class that is has a higher yield, but no upside. Can you talk to us about which of those are you into or looking into? Are you looking into those? Do you think it's a good time to invest in debt right now? And just talk about maybe preferred equity in general. When we talk about investing into a deal, we have this thing called the capital stack. And a capital stack is basically all the money it takes to put a deal together to get a deal done. Let's say I'm buying a deal for $20 million. My capital stack might look like I might have $14 million worth of bank loan or debt. And then I have $6 million worth of what we call equity, which is basically investors putting money into the deal. And so that's my capital stack, $14 million in debt, $6 million in equity. Every month, I have a bunch of money coming in. I'm paying a bunch of bills. I'm paying my property taxes. I'm paying my insurance. I'm paying for maintenance and property management and all that stuff. And I have a bunch of money left over at the end. Who is the very first person that I'm going to pay every month with that leftover money? The first person is going to be the bank. It's going to be the lender. It's going to be the debt. They're going to get the first check because I know that if they don't get the first check, they have the ability to come in and take that property away from me. If I have any money left over, that money is now going to go to my investors. Now, hopefully I have money left over. Hopefully my investors get stuff. But if for some reason my investors don't get anything, they can't take the property from me. They Unfortunately, they're going to be upset. They're not going to be happy at me, happy with me, but they can't take the property. The investors are in a worse position than the bank because the bank is getting paid first. Whoever gets paid first is in the best position. Whoever gets paid second is in the second best position. We all understand this. This is the reason why when I borrow money from the bank, I only have to pay them 6 or 7 or 8% interest. That's a pretty low number. They're not asking for a lot in return, but they don't have to because their risk is very low because they get paid first. So whoever gets paid first has the lowest risk and they generally make the least amount of money. Investors, they only get paid after the lender does. They get paid later. And because they get paid later, they're taking more risk. If for some reason that we this property doesn't do well and we have to sell it, bank's going to get paid first. Investors only get paid if there's money left over. So they're taking more risk. Because they're taking more risk, they require a higher return. And that's why banks might only make 6 7 8% interest, but investors want their 12% IRR or 14% IRR or 16% IRR. They take more risk, they make more money because they get paid later. That's what a capital stack basically is. Why are people investing in debt these days? Because they like the idea of taking less risk. They like the idea of being that person that's going to get paid first. And in return for getting paid first, what they're willing to give up is high returns. People come in and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'll invest in debt. Pay me my 8% or my 9% or my 10%. I realize I'm getting less money, but I'm much lower risk. And then we have this thing called preferred equity. And preferred equity is this place right in between debt and regular investors. It's a little bit higher risk. It gets a little bit higher return than debt but it's lower risk and lower return than regular investors. And the reason why it's higher risk than debt is because it gets paid after the lender. But the reason why it's lower risk than the regular investors is because they get paid second. They get paid before the other investors. The other investors now get paid third. And so they gotta sit in the middle. And because they get paid second, they take a little bit less risk, they make a little bit less money than the other investors, but they take more risk than the lender and they get paid a little bit more than the lender. And that's called preferred equity. And typically, preferred equity and debt these days are a lot more popular because people are worried about the economy. They're worried that a deal could go south. They're worried there could be a major financial issue and a deal could blow up 
and, and get taken back by the bank. And so people know that if they're getting paid first, they're taking the least risk. And because the economy is risky right now, they like the idea of less risk. So a lot of people are putting their money into these things that are lower risk, like debt, like preferred equity, even though they're having to take a lower return for it. People are trading risk for return. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's a great way to explain it. And the next question would be with the preferred equity. Sometimes you see that in a deal that you're investing in before the purchase, right? You're, it's The deal's there, there's preferred equity position. Now it seems we're seeing maybe preferred equity might come in on some deals that because of interest rates rising so fast, the deal is in a little bit of jeopardy. So you inject, instead of maybe doing a capital call, you have some preferred equity come in there. Can you talk about how that works and how that affects current LP investors on that deal if preferred equity comes in? Yeah, so typically as an investor, I don't want the group to be able to bring in preferred equity later at their own discretion. Because remember, if it's just the lender and the investors, lender gets paid first, investors get paid second. If the group can now bring in a preferred equity investment, now preferred equity gets paid second after the lender. And me as the regular investor, I'm now getting paid third. My risk just went up because I'm no longer getting paid second. I'm now getting paid third. Bringing in a preferred equity group without my consent, I've now, my investment is now a lot higher risk. I always want to make sure that when I go into a deal as an LP, that I know exactly what the capital stack is going to look like. And I want to make sure that the documents are written in such a way that I can't get disintermediated. I can't get another group of investors that get priority over me because that puts me in a riskier situation without any new upside. I got no benefit out of that. I just got the downside. Now, coming into a deal, knowing that there's going to be preferred equity in the deal from the beginning, that's different. Now I come in knowing I'm going to get paid third, but I can demand returns that are commensurate with that. I can say, I'm only going to do this deal that has preferred equity if I'm getting at least 15% compounded return, as opposed to normally I might take 13%. But because I have a little bit more risk, I'm going to demand a higher return. Or maybe I'm going to come in, I'm going to say, hey, I want to invest in that preferred equity investment. I don't want to be a regular investor in this deal. I want to go in in that preferred equity. Now, I'm in the lower risk position, even if it means I'm getting lower returns. Coming into a deal, I won't necessarily not do a deal if there's preferred equity, but I will want to make sure that I have higher potential for returns because I'm at more risk. And I do want to make sure that a group can't just add preferred equity without my consent after the deal's already been done. Does that typically have upside? Is it more like debt? Or does it have, are they going to participate materially in the upside? Most preferred equity is a hybrid between debt and equity. In fact, it's actually closer to debt, but we never call it debt because if there's a lender in the deal, a lender doesn't want to see more debt in the deal. They actually have, in the mortgage, it basically says you can't have another lender. We don't call it debt. We call it equity and we treat it like equity, but in a lot of ways, it's like debt. The reason it's like debt is most preferred equity has a fixed return. Unlike debt, the fixed return isn't coming all monthly. We run actually, full disclosure, we run a preferred equity fund where we have investors invest in our fund and we invest in deals as the preferred equity. What we typically get as returns for our investment, our preferred equity investment, is we typically get 6% per year in fixed income, a half a percent a month. And that's just like the lender. We get paid that every month. Uh, we get to, we, we have recourse if for some reason we don't get paid that. 
6% per year. And then when the deal sells, we get another 6% per year on the back end. When total, it's a 12% average annual return. There's no compounding there. If the deal does exceptionally well, we don't get more money. But if a deal does poorly, we typically don't get less money. And because we get paid second as preferred equity, we're going to get all of our money, all of our profits before the other investors will even get their money back at the end of the deal. And how is that taxed, that preferred equity? Is that taxed like equity so you get the depreciation and all that? 100%. Just like any other piece of the equity stack, I mean, it's, it's a fixed return, but from a tax standpoint, it's taxed exactly the same. Typically, preferred equity participates in depreciation, bonus depreciation, and cost segregation, all the tax benefits exactly the same way as regular equity does. I mean, all that's obviously negotiable, but all the deals I've seen, they participate exactly the same way. The only difference is they get paid second instead of third, and they have fixed 12% return as opposed to unlimited upside if a deal does really well. Okay, I want to pivot again here. I know we're all over the place, but there's so many questions I have for you. Stay on one topic. This might be a long one, I think, but Basically, we talk a lot about financial freedom, building wealth as passive investors. For someone new or even someone who's been doing this for a while, and we talked about diversification, how do we figure out a strategy for which asset classes to invest in? How much in each? Which operator? Which markets? How are we looking at that capital allocation? And how do we scale that investing business as a passive investor? That's probably four or five questions mixed up in there. But if you could try to touch on that, that'd be great. Yeah, it's a really tough question. Anytime you talk about asset allocation, uh, Benjamin Graham wrote some great books on asset allocation in the equities markets. So stock investor, you've probably read those. It's a difficult topic to really cover comprehensively. And I'm certainly not an expert. But what I like to think about is, again, there are different planes of investing, different ways to look at things and to look from five perspectives. We talked about them earlier, but I'll repeat them again. Number one, location, diversification across location. Number two, diversification across operator. Make sure you're diversifying across operators. Asset class is a big one. Again, a lot of asset classes aren't necessarily, I want to be careful with my terms, I don't want to say negatively correlated, which means if one loses money, the other is going to gain money, but are correlated in a way that one might do well if another one tends to do less well. I like to ensure that I have investments across a lot of different asset classes. We can talk about what some of those are. Types of returns is another one. Am I getting cash flow from some deals? Am I getting tax benefits from some deals? Am I getting long-term big return numbers from some deals? I like to balance that I'm not just getting all great tax benefits because here we are in a situation where it's hard to get cash flow these days. A lot of syndicators are saying, come invest with me for the tax benefits because that's all they have. I don't want to invest everything for tax benefit. I still want to find some cash flow deals, even if they're in different asset classes. And then finally, I'm very big on investing for different timeframes. We talk about dollar cost averaging in the equities world in the stock market. You can't really dollar cost average as well in real estate, but you can approach that. You can do that to some extent, and you do that by investing over periods of time and investing in deals that are going to last different periods of time. I want to constantly be investing. I want to be investing in something every couple months. And everything I invest in, I want to have different time periods. I might invest in something that's likely to be three years, something that's likely to be five, something that's likely to be 10, maybe something that I'm going to hold until I can pass on to my kids because it's going to be paying me cash flow for the next 30 years. Diversification across time spans as well. Those are five areas that I look at when I think about diversification in syndications or real estate or equity in general. 
And then how do you put that into practice? Like, I know we talk about, hey, you got to get into different asset classes, but you don't have control over which deals show up at which times. It's really complicated. And I know this is very individual. You don't have to talk about yourself specifically, but it's just generally, okay, so a self-storage deal came across my desk yesterday and tomorrow, multifamily deal and then a mobile home park. I'm kind of thinking, well, I have a multifamily, I have self-storage. Well, I better go jump in that mobile home park deal. So how do you figure that out with all the competing timeframes that you're dealing with? Yeah. Number one, let's be clear. When I say diversify, when I say these are also my criteria for due diligence, all of these things are important, but there is one of these things that sticks out more than others, and that's the operator. A good enough operator can overcome location risk and asset class risk, other risks and things going on in the deal. A bad operator isn't going to overcome any of those things. Number one for me is always going to be operator. And how do I decide on a good operator? Because here's the problem. I've learned this because I'm an LP investor, but I'm also a GP investor. And what I've realized is deals are complicated enough that if I wanted to obfuscate a deal to a point where none of my LP investors really knew what was going on or really understood the deal, I could do that. Underwriting for these things is as much an art as it is a science. I can manipulate my underwriting to the point where I could hide issues in the deal that I promise you no investor, I hate to say this because I don't want anybody to ever think I would do this, but I'm just pointing out it's possible. Smart GPs can obfuscate issues in the nuances of the underwriting. I know that I'm not smart enough if I'm going to do a deal with somebody in Omaha, Nebraska, I don't know enough and I'll never know as much about Omaha, Nebraska as that syndicator should. They could be hiding something about the location. I'm never going to know enough about self-storage or as much about self-storage as a syndicator that's doing something in self-storage. They want to hide something about a deal that I just don't understand enough about self-storage. No matter how smart, I'm not going to be able to find it. I recognize that to some degree, I am going to need to put my faith in an operator that they are doing the right thing and that they're as smart as they say they are and that they're being forthcoming with me about all the details of the deal. And so how do we do that? The way I like to do that is I focus on referrals. I will never invest with an operator, no matter how good that person looks to me, no matter, I might know somebody, like I met somebody and I've hung out with them for a couple months, I'm still not going to invest with them unless somebody else that I know and trust has invested with them for a long period of time and can vouch for them. And I realized this can make it really hard for syndicators to break into a space. If you're a new syndicator and all of your investors have this criteria that they need a referral, you're never going to get your first investor. Unfortunately, that's the hard thing. Maybe your first investor should be your friends and your family. But I'm going to take referrals as more valuable than my looking at the underwriting, my walking a property, my looking OM or PPM, all of that goes out the window. And at the end of the day, the biggest thing that I'm going to use to make my decision is somebody that I know and trust saying, this is somebody you know and you can trust. Yeah, that's great stuff. And people have heard me tell this story a million times, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I had three phases of how to find sponsors. The first one was bad. The second one was okay. And the third one is exactly what you just said. I don't invest with a sponsor unless they're referred to me by someone that I know, like, and trust, and that person's already invested in the deal. And then I do my due diligence. I do the same due diligence I used to, or even probably better now, but I start with that referral and and I'm 100 steps ahead. So the next logical question is, okay, someone refers you to an operator, how do you vet that operator? How do you make sure that, yeah, they came from someone you trust and they've invested with them, so you're fairly confident that you're on the right track, 
But how do you vet that operator for yourself? I want a list of investors who have invested with them. And a lot of them don't like turning that over. I don't ask for a list of every investor. I say, give me five investors. And they give me five. And then I say, give me five more. And again, I don't want anybody that that I would ever hide anything because I wouldn't. But certainly as somebody that has some really loyal investors, if I gave you my, my list of top five investors, they would never say a negative word about me because they're my super fans. They've been investing with me in a long time. They made a lot of money with me. And I'm the first to recognize we anybody that's been in this game for a little while has at least a short list of investors. They're biggest fans in the world. If you're investing with me, you want to talk to my second tier. You want to talk to the folks that have been investing with me, but that have seen the warts that saw the deal that we did back in during COVID where we didn't pay, um, we didn't pay distributions for most of 2020 because we were concerned about COVID. And you need to hear about that. You need to hear how did we handle that? How did we communicate that? Did we give information? Those are the investors you want to hear from, not the guy that just happened to invest in the last deal I did where everything went perfectly. How do you find that? You keep asking for more. Can I get a list of five people? You don't call those people, but then you go back and you say, thanks, can I get a list of five more? And hopefully they'll give you five more. If they do, you go back again and you say, give me five more. By that third list, those are the people you want to talk to. And most likely, they're still going to say good things, but they will have been the folks that have dealt with the warts. And we all have warts. We've all had things that have gone wrong in our deals. The key is, I want to hear, I hear nothing ever went wrong. Well, you're lying to me or you're not the investor I need to talk to. I want to talk to the guy that says something went wrong. Let me tell you how they handled it. Because at the end of the day, that's what I care about. Yeah, I wish I remember who this was because I, sh- I would give full credit to him. But I was talking to somebody and they said, they ask, they do the same thing you do. They ask for those referrals, but they ask for specifically investors who invested in the sponsor's most challenging and difficult deal. And then they say, also, I want to talk to the two investors that you had recent deals that did not invest again with you. Now, that could be just for capital reasons, but it could be for other reasons. So you're digging into trying to get to exactly what you just said, right? You're getting to the people that had a struggle because, yeah, if you've never had a struggle, I don't know if I want to invest with you, right? I want to know that how did you deal with the struggle and how did you come through it? So I think that's fantastic, a great way to do it. Yeah, things are always going to go wrong. And I don't care what you do when things are going well. Nobody's ever going to call you when things, nobody, none of my investors call me when things are going well. When It's when something happens that they're going to call me and they need to know how I'm going to react and how I'm going to communicate and how we're going to think through mitigation. And that's what I care about as an LP myself down to time here, but as a passive investor, what asset classes are you looking at right now? I invest not just, when I think about diversification, I think about outside of real estate as well. So I invest in a lot of things that are outside of real estate. In real estate, I'm investing in multifamily. Most of my multifamily investment is in my own deals. So I invest alongside my LPs, but I do invest a few other multifamily deals. Self-storage notes is something that I really like. And so those are the three big asset classes that I look at. And then I invest in, I do a lot of angel investing. So I invest in, in businesses, everything from funds. I'm looking at a car wash fund right now. It's an asset class that I really like because it's hard to find cash flow. Uh, it's a really good cash flow type asset class right now. I invest in racehorses. As far as I'm concerned, as much negative correlation as I can get across all these asset classes, the better I'm going to do. And again, it all boils down to sponsor the person running the deal, but I don't necessarily have to understand an asset class well if I trust the sponsor. I invest in a lot of things, but in real estate these days, 
It's probably notes, self-storage, and multifamily because I feel like there's the most negative correlation, the least correlation amongst those asset classes. And all three of those, I tend to like going into a, into a downturn. Excellent. And the last question I always ask, what's a great podcast that you listen to? A great podcast. Wow, it's funny. I've been on so many. This one, it seems awesome. So uh, anybody that's listening to this, go back and listen to every other episode. Here's one I love. It's not real estate. It's called the All In Podcast. It's a business podcast. I come from the venture capital world. It's run by four guys, three are venture capitalists, one's an angel investor, and they talk about all things business and macro and investing. And it's a lot of Silicon Valley talk. If you just want to get a well-rounded view on the economy and technology and business, it's an amazing podcast. Yeah, and they're entertaining. It's not just the knowledge. They're also fun to listen to, which is a double whammy there. That's awesome. Okay, great. Well, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. If someone wants to get in touch with you, learn more about Bar Down Investments, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, www.connectwithjscott.com. And that'll link you out to everything you need to know about me. And feel free to, to reach out to me by email. I'll always have to connect. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And again, thank you for your contributions to the community. We're so glad you're an infielder and part of Left Field Investors. And thank you for sharing your knowledge on the podcast as well. We enjoyed it. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Zach Hapsenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200-plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. Recession Resilient are two words that are heard often when discussing investing in mobile home parks and self-storage. But what does that really mean? And what happens if there's not a recession? At Crystal View Capital, we are vertically integrated and have over 150 employees focusing on assuring our assets perform daily, regardless of market conditions. With over $85 million in distributions paid to investors since 2014, we focus on downside protection, upside maximization, and all the hard work in between. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about our current offerings, please visit crystalviewcapital.com or click the link in the show notes. Really, really enjoyed that conversation with Jay. He just gives his knowledge, and that's why I love having him in the forum, the infielders. We're getting a ton of knowledge from him, and we got a ton in this podcast. I love the fact that he wrote a book so he wouldn't have to talk to people. He said he's an introvert, and his wife had a great idea. Just put it all in a book, and you won't have to go to all these lunches. I just love how that kind of kickstarted everything. And now, because he's an introvert, Bigger Pockets has a publishing arm. Amazing stuff. He talked about flipping and high touch, low margin. That is not, you have to, every time you flip one, you got to go find another. There's no recurring income there. So I get that. It would be exhausting after doing 450. I was exhausted after failing at one. Yeah, I get it. And it's interesting how he just puts himself in a situation and things turn out, right? You have to put yourself out there. You have to take chances. And when you do, you're going to find things happen that you weren't expecting, good things. And that's what you want to do. 
You're talking about looking long-term while making sure risk mitigation is primary. You're looking at the long-term, but you're mitigating risk in the short-term as well. So that was really good advice. And then he started to talk about diversification and I couldn't stop smiling because he named the first three things we always name at left field, right? Diversify by operator, asset class, and market. And then he added a couple more. I've always been thinking, you want to keep diversifying. He diversifies also by exit strategy and return structure and other ways. But you just got to always be thinking, how can I make sure that no matter what happens and where it happens, I am protected. I have different buckets of investments. Some are going to do well and some might do less well at certain times. Also interesting that he is looking at debt now. And a lot of people are because there's less risk. What you give up there is a little bit of higher returns. That makes sense. And when we're talking about investing with new operators, I just love when I get confirmation, right? When we talk about community personal finance, that's one of the things we're addressing these days. And one of the things alternative investing is hard. But when you do it in a community, when you do it with others, it gets a lot easier. And that's part of that is the confidence. And it's the same thing. When I remember when Steve Sue told me he was in the same operator that I was, I got confidence. And that's what you get when Jay was talking about you only invest in a new operator if somebody that you know and trust has already invested with them. That's the same philosophy we have. And so that's the confidence I get. Somebody smart who knows what he's doing, well-connected to the industry, an operator, an awesome passive investor. And he says he's finding new operators the same way we at Left Field Investors are. That just gives me confidence that we're on the right track. I'm really pleased with that. And he also said another thing, which too is if you trust the sponsor, once you get to that point where you're trusting the operator and you have confidence in them to do a good job, then you might be okay getting into an asset class with them that you don't know quite as well as maybe you think you should because you're trusting the operator. And I just love that philosophy because I can't be an expert in everything. What I need to do is be an expert in finding quality operators and then trust them to do their job. Ton of awesome content from Jay. We're certainly going to have him on again. And I'm going to be reading the forums every time he posts because that guy, he brings the knowledge every time. So really appreciative of him. And that's all we have for now. We'll talk to you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.